Hey, hey, listeners! Welcome back to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap for the January 22nd, 2021 report. This week, we're talking about fruits and veggies, vaccinations, and COVID-19. I'm Grace Calhoun. Let's get started. The first study in this week's MMWR looked at the percentage of adolescents meeting federal recommendations for fruit and vegetable consumption. The age window of observed adolescents was 14 through 18 years old. Fruits and vegetables are a part of a healthy diet, and a healthy diet is important in reducing diet-related chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, some cancers, and obesity. The data that we're looking at in this article is from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which we affectionately call YERBIS, from 2017. The YERBIS is conducted every other year, so I am a little surprised that the researchers are looking at 2017 data instead of 2019 data. It's a weird detail that we're going to pass right over since I couldn't find an explanation for it. Anyway... The sample for this study comes from 33 U.S. states, so it is moderately representative of American adolescents. In total, this study analyzed 13,354 Yerbis responses from students aged 14 through 18. The researchers found that in 2017, the proportion of high school students who met the federal intake recommendations for fruits and veggies was low, very low. Only 7.1% of adolescents ate enough fruit, and only 2% ate enough veggies. And these numbers were actually consistent across demographic groups. Can you believe it? We live in an age where hummus is widely available, and you're telling me that 2% of teens are eating their vegetables. There's literally no excuse. Anyone can eat a vegetable if there's hummus on it. Prove me wrong. The findings from this study are significant because adolescents are growing little nuggets. A healthy diet means healthy growth, meaning the diet is big here. Also, eating patterns from adolescents could continue into adulthood, so 7 and 2% fruit and vegetable consumption is just not going to cut it. The answer, according to the authors, is a public health intervention. The National School Lunch Program, which serves 39% of high school students, already requires a daily fruit and veggie option, but that feels a bit too little, too little. Now, FDA legislation from 2010 requires this thing called smart snack standards for school vending machines, meaning heck no to sodas and cookies, and heck yes to fruit cups and granola bars. Moving on, a community-level intervention could be something like the FNV like fruits and veggies, campaign, in which the objective is to market fruits and vegetables like they're any other big-name product. There are actually a lot of celebrities backing the FNV campaign. A policy-level intervention to increase fruit and vegetable consumption could be programs that financially incentivize purchasing produce, like when states allow farmers markets to be covered by the federal SNAP food assistance. Not all states do that, though. Also, hello, social media make fruit and veggies like a TikTok challenge or something. So the second article in this week's report is about vaccinations in kindergartners. Vaccinations are a big one for me here. I'm the person who can turn a happy barbecue into a full-blown lecture series about the importance of vaccines if you get me started. So this study looked at vaccination data from kindergartners in the majority of U.S. states 
The vaccines evaluated were for varicella, diphtheria, and tetanus, acellular pertussis, also known as the Tdap or DTAP vaccine, and measles, mumps, rubella. So schools have to obtain information from parents and guardians about their child's vaccination status. And this information then goes to the CDC for reporting national level estimates of vaccine coverage. And this is the data that this study used. In total, over 3.5 million kindergartners were surveyed to determine the percentage of students who received the vaccines in question, the measles, mumps, DTAP, tetanus, all those. So the finding was that nationally, 94.9% of kindergartners met the vaccine requirements, while 2.5% were exempted for at least one vaccine. For these exemptions, only 0.3% of kindergartners had a medical exemption, compared to 2.2% with a non-medical exemption. But we're still missing a group here, and that's the under-vaccinated but not exempt students. So these under-vaccinated students made up 2.3% of the kindergartners observed. This group of under-vaccinated students is what might matter most here. The authors note that in 26 U.S. states, the vaccine coverage was actually increased. So the percentage of people who got vaccinated actually increased, at least for the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And the way that they increased this number was by focusing in on the under-vaccinated students who are not exempt and are also not up to date on their vaccines. One example of this is that some states would create a list of low vaccine coverage schools. So schools with a low percentage of students who've been vaccinated. And from that list, health agencies would actually run media campaigns, have vaccine reminders for parents, and even provide incentives to families to get vaccinated. This is of special importance because the measles outbreaks became a significant problem in 2019, where 1,282 individual cases of measles were confirmed in 31 states. This is the largest amount of cases reported in the U.S. since 1992. This is after measles was declared eliminated in 2000. And so we've really made a comeback in the worst way here. Naturally, most of the measles cases we saw in 2019 occurred in unvaccinated individuals. But assuming that the unvaccinated kids have an exemption, the focus has to be on the non-exempted, under-vaccinated kids. The authors state that if those kids were vaccinated, Almost all states could have more than 95% vaccine coverage. Okay, see, I told you I could talk forever about this, but you don't want that and I get it. So, next article. The third article in this report will be a very quick recap. It's about COVID case investigations and contact tracing in the U.S., The authors found that as COVID cases have increased, contact tracers are burdened with a heavier caseload. The data from this study is collected by 62 U.S. health departments and its surrounding case investigation and contact tracing efforts. So contact tracers have an important job here. The contact tracers are people who call you when you get COVID, ask you who you've been in contact with within a certain time period, and then they contact your contacts, the people that you've been in contact with, if you're the person who has COVID. And so what this study found was that in health departments where contact tracers had higher caseloads, the contact tracers were less able to reach the COVID positive patients within 24 hours of their COVID onset, 
which likely would contribute to the transmission of COVID if the contact tracer is the first person breaking the news that this patient now has COVID, right? Because they might be going around acting like nothing's wrong and thus spreading COVID. Health departments with larger average caseloads also identified less contacts. This is compared to health departments with less caseloads who conversely were able to reach more COVID patients within 24 hours and were able to identify more contacts of those COVID patients. The authors point to heavy staff member workload likely due to the surging COVID cases as an important factor in determining the completeness and the timeliness of case investigation and contact tracing. Basically, health departments should hire more staff. More staff could reduce delays in interviewing patients and could increase the amount of contacts that get identified. This helps with the speed of identifying and quarantining contacts, which is important in slowing the spread of COVID-19. The fourth study of this week's report analyzed trends in COVID-19 among people ages 0 to 24. The authors analyzed COVID cases from March through December of 2020. They were specifically looking at this data to analyze the trends in COVID after schools reopened in the fall. Because remember, the window was March through December of 2020, so the researchers were able to assess COVID numbers pre and post school openings. A total of 2,871,828 cases were observed in this time period. And what they found was that first, COVID-19 cases increased in all observed age groups, so children, adolescents, and young adults. They increased in parallel, meaning at the same-ish rate. COVID-positive cases were consistently lower in children ages 0 through 10 than they were among older age groups. Remember, they only studied people 0 through 24 years old. Compared to the low number of cases in people 0 through 10 years old, researchers noted that almost 60% of the reported COVID cases in this study occurred in young adults aged 18 through 24, i.e. the college-aged population. Increases in COVID cases among this 18 through 24-year-old age group did happen before case increases in the other age groups, suggesting that young adults might be contributing more heavily to community transmission of COVID, which is significant. So let's bring this back to schools. What does this information tell us about safely reopening schools? In short, reopening K-12 schools is a smaller COVID threat than reopening higher education institutions. Additional studies have demonstrated that community COVID cases in areas where K-12 schools offer in-person instruction are similar to areas where K-12 schools only offer virtual education. Whereas with higher education, like colleges and universities, we've seen evidence that university in-person instruction does contribute to community transmission of COVID. Implications? For K-12 schools, in-person learning could be safe if the school and the community fully implements and strictly adheres to multiple mitigation strategies like universal and proper masking, hand washing, all that jazz. The community is an important piece to this puzzle because if community transmission is high, cases in schools will also likely increase. All right, article five of six. We're talking COVID still, but different because we're talking about the COVID variant. 
So what we know so far is that a more highly transmissible variant of COVID has been detected in 12 U.S. states. This variant comes from the U.K. and is known as SARS-CoV-2 B117. Or maybe it's SARS-CoV-2 B117, since it's from the U.K. I don't know. Anyway, we're talking about that one. We're talking about the British one because the other COVID variants that have been identified, like from South Africa and Brazil, have not been reported in the U.S., at least as of mid-January, so we're not going to talk about them. All right, so in this article, researchers modeled the trajectory of B117, and the model indicated that this variant will become predominant by March, meaning it will be the most common form of the virus by March. And so we don't know whether B117 is worse than regular COVID, but because B117 is more transmissible, like more contagious, we expect to see higher numbers of B117 COVID cases. And that's going to put further strain on our already burdened healthcare system. So it'll result in more deaths. Like even though the virus is not more deadly, the burden it's placing on our healthcare system is going to likely increase the amount of deaths. So to combat this new variant, mitigation strategies like physical distancing, consistent hand hygiene, and universal masking need to be rigorously implemented and extended ASAP. This will be critical in making time for more vaccinations, which is important because with this new variant, we actually need a greater percentage of the population to be vaccinated than we originally thought with the sort of regular COVID before we had this new variant. Also, strategic testing efforts play a role here as well in controlling the virus. So testing asymptomatic people who are at a higher risk of infection, like people who have been exposed to COVID or people who have frequent unavoidable contact with the public, testing for these asymptomatic people can be another opportunity to limit ongoing spread. I don't know why the researchers didn't also mention that we should be testing symptomatic people as well who are who have been exposed to COVID and are interacting with the public. I guess that's implied. It should have been stated, but whatever. The takeaway of this article is that mitigation strategies, testing, and vaccinations are important. We need them all, and we need them now in order to control COVID-19 and this B117 nonsense. The final study in this week's report tested the Abbott Binax Now rapid antigen test for COVID detection. The rapid antigen test was compared against a reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction test, i.e. an RT-PCR test, which is the gold standard in COVID testing at the moment. So you may be wondering, if an RT-PCR test is the gold standard, why don't we just use that? And that's a great question. The short answer is that the rapid antigen tests have quick turnaround times, which can be important in detecting COVID and isolating people faster. The researchers found that the antigen test was much more effective at catching COVID in symptomatic people, where it identified 64% of true positives. This is compared to asymptomatic people, where only 36% of true positives were identified. Basically, for this test, there were very few false positives, but there were a lot of false negatives. And this rapid antigen test was better at identifying people who were symptomatic. The findings here are consistent with another CDC study about a different antigen test. Bottom line being that antigen tests can be useful tools in a broader community testing strategy for reducing COVID transmission. Namely, they're good for testing symptomatic people and quickly identifying and isolating COVID positive cases, but 
RT-PCR tests are still necessary for more accurate testing. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Instagram at mmwrecap for more bird's eye view statistics and yeah, it's pretty much just statistics. All right, this is Grace Calhoun. I'm signing off. See you next week.